podcast one production. Hello, my name's Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home, where we explore the unknown stories behind the food that we all love. Joanna McMillan is a doctor and a nutritionist whose TEDx talk has racked up nearly half a million views on YouTube. Incredible. In the talk, Joanna debates why food goes beyond just the nutrients in it and how it can be the gateway to our memories, our community and, of course, our culture. I love the idea so much that I wanted to talk more about it with Joanna. So we sat down and we ended up discussing so much more. Take a listen to my chat with the incredibly charming Joanna McMillan. How important is food in your life? Um, food is central to my life. It's it's really, I mean, obviously I've made it my career from a nutrition science perspective, mm. but aside from that, I'm kind of, you know, I'm a nutrition science foodie. I love, and actually, you know, I was really keen to talk to you today because several years ago when I, I won a health award for one of my books and it was down at Dalton House, the award ceremony, and there was one little table of nutrition and dietitian type people and the rest of them was full of chefs. And all the other awards were for chefs and restaurants and whatnot. And when I got up to get my award, I said, right, you lot, it's about time. You're having all the fun with food down here. And then there's us with nutrition science and dietetics who are thought to be a bit boring and healthy food is dull and boring. And I said, come on, there's somewhere that we can meet in the middle where it can be healthy food, but it can also be really delicious. Did you get a single... Uh, I did, well, lots a of... single clap from <laughs> a bunch from of one different chef. personalities, you know. <laughs> No, well, actually, With all sorts since of problems, that, let, you, let, let me tell you. <laughs> since that night, I've actually had lots of chefs who have met me through various things, some who came up on the night and said, hey, Joe, we'd love to work with you in some way. And over the years, I have had the opportunity to work with a few different chefs. And so I think we're sort of getting there. I think my impression anyway, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression is that lots of chefs are actually interested in, and what we share is that we're certainly interested in good produce and and utilising great produce in interesting and pleasurable ways. And to me, joy and pleasure is absolutely essential. You're just mixing with different chefs to the chefs I'm mixing <laughs> with. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking the mickey a little bit. Did you grow, you grew up in Scotland? Where did you grow up? I did, yeah. So I grew up in the country, um, south of Glasgow, so in the country, which is, I think people are always surprised by my accent, but the country accent tends to be a little softer. So I grew up, look, you know, there wasn't fast food. People don't believe me when I say I've never eaten McDonald's, but yeah. it's it's not an, that's not really an anti-McDonald's thing. It's just, it's never been part of my life. You know, I grew up where my mom had a veggie patch and, you know, we'd be sent out to pick the potatoes for dinner. Uh, a meal wasn't a meal without potatoes back in those days. And so we, you know, I just, I grew up my mom cooking every night and she was a fairly traditional cook, but she did then get, you know, a little bit creative. She was a very good cook um, and had done some cooking training. She'd done a cord I heard she made course. good lasagna. Is that, she did. Is that right? How did you know about that? Ah, oh, just, you know, I've got you. my sauces. Done your research. No, I've got my sauces. <laughs> she lasagna. made awesome marmalade. Not lasagna. <laughs> I know. So she sort of got, you know, and... Um, my dad loved doing a curry and so we'd have curry. So she was fairly adventurous for back then with her cooking. Do you, do you remember a little moment, moments when you were a little girl um, in the kitchen? Yeah, absolutely. So my mum taught me how to cook. So I'm completely self-taught. I'm not, I'm not any kind of trained cook. So the recipes that I share with my members and people are not chef recipes at all. They're just home cooking. And so, yeah, my mum taught me how to cook. And the way I cook today is, is quite different to the way that, that she did. I've sort of moved away from a lot of those sort of very traditional kind of meat and three veg type dishes that my mum did very well. But, what was you know, the first thing she taught you to cook? Um, and probably, well, she taught me how to do basic stuff like boil an egg and poach an egg and 
make an omelette and make spaghetti bolognese and, you know, that, that sort of basic stuff. I guess I learned how to, I always remember telling, teaching me how to make a white sauce. And I'm glad I know that now because so many people I talk to now have no idea how to make a white sauce to throw over the veggies the and the kids Does she make it, it in the microwave? No. Just out of curious. You never made a white sauce no. in the microwave. My no. mother does it. And I just went, that's ridiculous. That's so domestic and, and terrible. How and, do you do that? And now I make it in the lovely. microwave. You know why I make it in the microwave? <laughs> so I don't wash the bloody pot up. That's what it is. So all you do is you put a jug of milk in the microwave. People are now turning off. They're, they're going, Gary Megan makes white sauce in the microwave. So back onto your childhood. So do <laughs> well, you. I'm going to try that one. Do you? And I, I heard a lovely. A thing recently where they said that they could see, I think it was their auntie's hands in theirs. Do you ever mm. have a moment where you see your mum's hands? Oh, in yeah. Yours? Is that the white row around? Yeah. Yeah, especially as I'm getting older, my mother's hands are appearing. Oh, yeah, but I do all the time, particularly with my children, particularly with the way that I talk to my kids or the way that I discipline them or that might be my short temper when I lose my temper with them. I hear my mother's voice coming through. So yeah, absolutely. I think we all sort of channel, not just my mom, but my dad as well, mm. you know, aspects of the way that I was brought up. I and, can and certainly f- see me replicating. And from the kitchen, like, is there one thing that you still make that she taught you how to do? Other um, than the omelette? And the, is there, it could be a special moment. It's like, you know, those shared moments that you have with food and yeah. you go, I always remember that. Oh, it might be the things like lasagna because that was such a, that was the dish that my mum always made. She was always, what my mum was a master of was, and this is definitely part of her farming Scottish upbringing where, you know, you could all come home with a friend for dinner. She never batted an eyelid. So many people now panic at the idea of having people over and you have to feed everybody. And my mum would just be seamless. Another potato would go in the pot and she'd eke the meat out a bit further or, you know, she just had a way of making food go, oh, we've got three extra mouths to feed. Not a problem. It was never an issue. So I I think that's where I see, I've definitely got that from my mum now. I don't worry about, and the lasagna was what she used to produce when we had a mountain, you know, all of us kids brought someone home or we had a birthday party. She'd always make, you know, a lasagna the size of the oven and that's how she fed everybody. So what do your kids see in you? What do you do when all the kids come over? Is it lasagna or something different? Well, you know, in summertime, it's often a barbecue. So I might do homemade burgers, but I make sure that the kids, they don't, you don't get a white burger bun in my house, I'm afraid, or a brioche bun or any of those fancy fancy things you chefs like. You get a whole grain sourdough bun and the kids have to eat that whether they like it or not. But So I'll do homemade burgers. And you don't burgers. find buns around the garden? Like you didn't? <laughs> just what's, what's Amazingly, <laughs> amazingly they eat it. My youngest son does sometimes say to me, it's not fair that you're a nutrition scientist, mum. <laughs> and I There's say, one t- day you'll thank me. There, is there not a time for white bread? No. Never a time for white bread. It makes the best <laughs> summer pudding, just so you know. Well, it, we oh, call it, okay. co- we call right, it yeah, cotton wool right. bread in the business where you go, or, um, and you probably won't eat these either, but, you know, like in a Chinese restaurant, prawn toasts. Oh, Got to yes. have white yeah, yeah, bread yeah. for that. Cotton, cotton wool is a good uh, name for that, actually, because you try putting white bread in the roof of your mouth. This is a little test I do with people to see the nutritional value of the bread. Mm. You put white bread like that, the enzymes in your saliva, so you've got salivary amylase is is the enzyme that starts to break down starch. It starts its job in the mouth and you probably, if you left it there for just a few minutes, you wouldn't even have to chew it at all. You've already started breaking it down. You start tasting sweet. That's the glucose molecules being released. You do that with a really grainy sourdough nothing will happen. Mm. It'll See, still I'm, be there days later. That's fascinating, mind. but I'm still thinking of prawn toast. And and there, <laughs> Joanna, is where we probably differ. I'm going, yeah, I love prawn toast and they're deep fried as well. We have some work to do, Gary. <laughs> I, we've got a lot of work to do. I, you know what I actually thought about this? And I, and I watched the TED Talk that you did. 
And I love oh. the idea that you presented a bottle of pills and said, if yeah. we can replace food with this, would you do it? And everybody went, ah, no. Talk more about that. Tell us about that, why you introduced it that way. I was trying to get across the idea. Actually, that idea came from a personal trainer who years and years and years ago um, said to me at a conference, I I often do um, lectures and things for trainers at their conferences. And this lecture, this uh, personal trainer had said during my lecture, I just can't wait until we've got a pill and that gives us all the nutrition that we need. I think my talk was on supplements and protein powders and all this stuff and whether or not we need them. And, and I was utterly horrified that that's where one person's mind was, that they thought, I can't be bothered with food. I don't want to have to deal with it. I don't want to have to think about what the balance is in the plate, whether I'm getting all my nutrients. I just want to get it from a pill and I'm not bothered about eating. Now, I suspect that that is really a very small minority of people who feel that way. There are those people who think food is just fuel and they're just not interested in going to nice restaurants or making nice food. But they really are in the minority. For most of us, Food is much more than that. So that was the point I was trying to get across, that when we have all these, which I am immersed in constantly, and sometimes I get so fed up of having these arguments and debates over what's the healthiest diet and should we be paleo, should we be vegan, should we be this, should we be that? And and I sort of just like to bring it back to the fact that food is about more than nutrients. Food is central to our lives. It's central to who we are as as humans. And, and as is cooking, you know, if you've watched Michael Pollan's brilliant documentary, it started as a book, Cooked, yeah. and then he turned it into a documentary. One of the episodes there that really stuck with me was when he was interviewing this, um, I guess it was an anthropologist who was talking about cooking was kind of the turning point of humans becoming what we think of as being human today. It made us more intellectual, more social, um, and it really, really was a turning point for human history. I think the fascination for me as a cook is how entrenched in different cultures food is and mm. how those cultures have developed and how they've yeah. become different things. Scotland, Italy, for example, you know, yeah. and how they eat. And th- this fascination with diet and which one is the best one also digs into that. That's... Because I think Mediterranean it does diet, Japanese diet. Yeah, it's tribal. So could, could, mm. do you know about that? Can you talk about yeah, that? Yeah, look, I, I do. I see that very much. I mean, even here within Sydney, you know, I, I um, recently moved from Bondi. We used to, and I used to call that Paleo Central in Bondi. But in Bondi and, and this sort of bubble of Sydney, I, I sometimes feel like there's this, what tribe are you in? You know, are you a vegan? Are you a paleo? Are you a, a gluten-free? You know, and it's, it becomes this almost sort of tribal belonging mm. um, that becomes part of people's identity. And that's fine. But what if, if they're all healthy diets, and there's lots of healthy aspects about all of those diets. But what I fear is that we've got this rise of people who are so obsessed with healthy eating. And often it's very skewed and it's not truly healthy eating. But there, it's actually become a recognised psychological disorder just in the same way as we have bulimia and anorexia. We've now got this um, sort of whole whole group of people who are so obsessed with healthy eating that it's taking away from their enjoyment of eating. And it's actually narrowing their intake of different foods. So it's actually affecting their nutrition. And then most worryingly, I think, is then their influence onto their kids and onto the next generation coming through about the true role that that food plays. And that's a concern. I think people like Michael Pollan and Cooked in particular, and he he wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma as well, which I read, which is, if you're a foodie, have you read that one? It's fascinating. I love it. And But in Cooked, he talks more about that social idea Mm. of cooking and and cultures that they're – their table is the centre of the day, you know, whether it's in the morning or, you yeah. know, and, it, and it, it's a community, it's family, it's community. And that there's almost as much of a positive benefit in that mentally as nutritionally. Absolutely. Slowing and down, 
yeah. talking, being part eating of together. A, eating together. Do you, do you believe that? Absolutely. That was the other thing that I, the story I raised in my TEDx talk was, was talking about, you know, the time when I was a student and I waitressed in a restaurant in Paris. And that was one of the things that There's I noted back then. another story for you. Uh, when I, or are you going to tell me you waitressed in Paris too? <laughs> <laughs> no, no I, we'll come back to that. Carry on, okay. carry on with the thought. And it was in a very French area. It wasn't a tourist area. And one of the things that I noticed back then, and I was only a young kid, I was 18, 19, whatever I was, and all of the local Parisians would come to the restaurant. They sat down together. Um, they ate with a knife and fork. They ate a proper meal, what I would think of as a proper meal, not grabbing a burger or a sandwich or a wrap or whatever, you know, en route or sitting at their desks. They actually took at least an hour out. Um, they ate the meal, they, you know, conversed and chatted over lunch and then they would walk back to their offices. And I think, you know, one of the things that I, I notice in modern life is everyone gets busier and busier and everyone's got more and more demands. And it's as if the priority of eating has been pressed down, particularly during the day. So we might go to a nice restaurant for a meal at night and that still happens. You know, if you think about your first date with your partner or you know, if you're trying to entertain a client or, or, or you're celebrating or you're commiserating, it usually involves something around food and drink. But certainly through the day, I feel like food's lost its priorities. And this rise in nutritional problems that we're having is coinciding with this lack of respect and lack of priority given to meals. My, and that's, that's a shame. My daughter went on French exchange uh, last year. I went for a month, went to Bordeaux. And she was one of the first things she said, I can't believe it. They take two hours for lunch out of school. Yeah. Uh, so they all go into town and, you know, they're eating canelay and pastries and but cheese and all sorts yeah. of things. And she said to me, but they're not fat, Dad. It's really yeah. interesting. And I think obviously it's changing mm -hmm. because they're eating different foods. But the the idea of taking two hours for lunch for, for Jenna was quite a strange concept, even though she's yeah. been there before on holiday, obviously never experienced it as a day-to-day -day thing. And she said they eat cheese every night. Like every yeah. night she said, and they're delicious, you know, because we eat good stuff too. Yeah. And for me, that's just an excuse to eat cheese at night, which is a terrible <laughs> thing for me. But I just went, it shows you, doesn't it? They, in, it does. in some of the studies that they've done, and obviously I'm not an expert, but they, they talk about how uh, different populations have mm. a different uh, ability to digest different foods, process different foods. And now because it's all so global, this is why we're having mm. lots of problems. Is there any truth in that? There's, well, what is certainly true um, is that, yeah, our, our gut flora becomes very particular to the way that you're eating. So when you're eating, you're not just feeding yourself, but you're, you're feeding your gut bugs as well. So we know, for example, that um, the Japanese have particular bugs in their gut that helps them to digest and break down seaweed. And we don't have those bugs. So, you know, some parts of seaweed we're unable to digest and they'll simply pass straight through. So there's those, those sorts of things. The thing that is absolutely glaring from, from the work on the microbiome is that um, if you compare urban, modern um, and uh, communities like us here in Sydney and, and in Melbourne, Brisbane, and you compare that with um, kids and people growing up in a much more rural and much more traditional uh, place, the diversity of bugs available is greatly reduced in these urban modern environments. So one of the great, one of my favourite studies looked at kids in Africa compared to kids in Florence and Italy, and the diversity of their gut bugs was and it was enormously wider. You know, several times in Africa. bigger in Africa compared to the kids in Florence, and they had much more of the the what I like to call the plant munchers. So these are the bugs that help us to break down the tough fibres that are present in plant foods. Whereas you know the Florence kids who are eating a much more refined 
find much uh, far fewer variety. We think we've got great food variety, but if you look at this stuff, and, and Michael Pollan makes this point very well in, I think it's in his Omnivore's Dilemma book, where you look in the supermarket, you start reading ingredients labels, and lots of the foods have the same stuff in them. They're just packaged up a different way and put, you know, I mean, do we really need 500 different breakfast cereal varieties and 500 different types of biscuits? You know, they're all just variations on a theme, really. So we don't have as much diversity in our diet and that's leading to reduced diversity in gut bugs and the theory. um, And there's lots of biologically plausible explanations for why that might be a problem. But that's certainly part of the hypothesis as to why we've got this Forgive the word, but this explosion in uh, gut so the, problems. So the microbiome, this the the gut health is now the big thing. It, it is. It's the sexy thing in nutrition everybody's research. Everybody's gone. Right now. Oh, this is the reason that you can't digest milk or you can't digest seaweed. You know, yeah. you don't have the gene you need to. Yeah, and digest what, the food. Well, what what is really interesting? If I just look at my career in nutrition science, which is you know sort of twenty five years or so. And, and compared to even when I first studied, it was kind of this idea of we got our genes and you can't do much about it. Those are your genes. And so there would be the people who thought, oh, well, my parents are fat. I'm going to be fat. My parents died of heart disease. I'm going to get heart disease. And there was this sort of um, uh, thought that you can do nothing about what your genes are. Now that we've moved on, the first thing that happened, we understood this whole area, which is called epigenetics, which is really like the, the explanation always sticks in my head. It's like a light switch with a dimmer on it. So you can switch genes on and off and you can ramp them up and down. And that's through diet and lifestyle. And now in the last few years, there's been this plethora of studies coming out. I mean, there's literally 500 studies a week coming out at the moment on the microbiome. And now we've got this link showing us how the microbiome influences our gene expression, influences our physical and even our mental health. So we've got these two big areas on top of our genes. And to me, that's exciting because that means you don't have to just accept that I've got my genes and that's it. I can do nothing about it. We know that diet and lifestyle influences the expression of your own genes and via the microbiome has these enormous impacts. So that gives us a good level of control. And I think that's pretty See, I read. I think it was last year I read the, is it the diet myth, which is about yes. gut health, right? And I love it for all the wrong reasons because I go, that's great. Because what it does in my mind, I go, yeah, eat more natural stuff, fermented stuff, mm. you know, all the, th- I love all those things, you know, so whether it's a, a sourdough or a, a pickle or a, you know, a, a soft malt cheese. cheese. Aren't we? We're back to there. We go, and you knew it was See, coming. It's a you knew it food. was coming. So, and I go more cheese, you know, and all the rest of it. So, I did. I did this f- funny thing because I'm fairly compulsive, and I just went out and I topped up all those things in my fridge. You know, like I reminded myself that I do love great cheese, and I went to yeah. the cheesemonger in in the market, and I go, oh, I'll have some Comte, and I'll, oh, what's that one? That looks runny and you know and sticky and whatever. And I buy them, and I shove it in the fridge. And Mandy goes, "What's it? my wife?" What the hell are you doing? I go, we're getting more. We're Because five years before that, I'd be going, yeah, more fermented stuff. We ferment stuff all the time. Everything's fermented. You know, everything's, you know, yeah. yogurt. You know, it's it's a live culture. So now I'm eating more yogurt. I mean, what, I just got fatter because I was just eating. <laughs> eating. I, I think uh, this is leading into a discussion on portion size, possibly. <laughs> if you know me, there's no hope. So I don't know if, if it's even worth discussing. But I think what it is for, for me, we're just all confused like really mm. confused. There's, there's so much information out there. No one really knows w- what to do with it. But then the solid answer that always comes back, and I've read it in what, what, what you've written or said, is that, you know, exercise moderation. And it's what my mum mm. was telling me or my dad was telling me. And then we all go, oh, yeah, exercise moderation. But we don't. Yeah. 
Well, because it's such a boring word, isn't it? Moderation. Yeah, so no and that's what I was kind that. of getting at. It's, it's, there's so much confusion, but then the yeah. alternative seems really uh, boring. Yeah. I, well, you or know, obvious. I, so obvious that it's. Yeah, I really hate the word, and I and actually some things we shouldn't do in moderation. So things like our veggies, we shouldn't be moderate. The, we're we're seven percent of Aussies are eating the right number of veggies, but I can see why. Every you know, just yesterday I was working with with a guy who's taking part in our next Catalyst show, and he said to me, "Just don't make me eat Brussels sprouts." And I said, "You just haven't had Brussels sprouts cooked well. I can guarantee it." And and then when I quizzed him, absolutely, his memory, his ga- he was literally gagging at the thought of Brussels sprouts. And it was all because back when he was a kid, you know, they would be boiled until they were, you know, practically a soggy mess. And then his father would hold his nose and force him <laughs> to eat the Brussels sprouts. And I was well, no wonder you think you hate Brussels sprouts. So to me, it's about, you know, moderation is a dull, boring message. We have to find a more exciting and sexier way to talk about good nutrition. And to me, it is actually about bringing it back to the pleasure and enjoyment of food and the confusion is only there because of the media. I mean, I I have a love-hate relationship with the media. I've worked in the media for many, many years. But, you know, if, 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 I don't know, the Today Show said to me, I said to them, let's do a segment tomorrow on eating more veggies and eating Brussels sprouts. They would be, you know, get lost. But if I go in and I go, hey, I can tell you about a study that says suddenly that bacon and butter are back on the menu. Oh my goodness, that's a sensational headline. They're interested in the story. So the problem is that the research is not actually that confusing. There are still, you know, nutrition science is quite a young science. So there are still things that we have to learn, things that the scientists themselves are still working out and debating and researching. But to be honest, they're all this, it's all the detail. The big picture we well understand, and you said it, it's about eating real food. It's about going back to eating real food. And when we look at the big macro level, the big picture, the bottom line is that too many of us are eating far too much junk food, far too much ultra processed food, and we're not eating enough of the things like veggies and nuts and whole grains and legumes and wonderful seafood and lean, good quality meats. You know, we're not eating enough of that stuff. And it's the rubbish that we're eating too much of. Do you get upset when you don't see any Action? Yeah, I do, because because all I see is things getting worse. You know, we're at a stage now in Australia and most of the rest of the world, you know, we're all, we argue over who's the fattest country. To be honest, it's all, you know, we're splitting hairs, really. All Most of the developed countries in the world and the developing countries are fast following. So the reality is that for the first time in human history, we have a bigger problem with overweight than we do with underweight. Here in Australia, it's more normal to be fat than it is to be a healthy weight. And with that comes problems. You know, one of the, the covers of Time magazine a few years ago was obesity is contagious. And of course it's not, you can't catch it. But the headline came from a study that said the more obese people you know, the more likely you are to be yourself. And why that's happening is because suddenly it becomes more acceptable. You think, oh, well, I'm not that bad. I'm slimmer than that person. And oh, they eat McDonald's every day or they have, you know, fried chicken every day and and they're okay. And so therefore that's normal. So it becomes the norm. And this is, I mean, this this is where the government campaign about, you know, make healthy normal is, that's where that's come from. We need to get our get our um, our eyes back on what is normal? What's the normal way to eat? It's not normal to snack every two, you don't need to snack every two hours. Where did that come from? And, and, and I think you've hit the nail on the head actually with the availability of food. Um, you know, if you put rats in the lab and you give them what's called a canteen diet, which means you let, let them have access to a whole load of different foods, even rats will eat more and they'll get fat. 
So we do lack the capacity because in evolutionary terms, this availability of food is just in the blink of an eye compared to, you know, never before, even in our, you know, my grandmother's era who went through the war and they had war rations. That was when Britain was healthiest, when there were war rations. So this is such a new thing that we, that's why we have no self-control. We've never had to before. And now it's like our, our ancestral genes are there going, whoa, look at all this food. And we have no means of putting the brakes on. This is A Plate to Call Home, and I'm Gary Megan. More from Joanna after the break. How responsible is government? What would you like to see mm. changed? How responsible are manufacturers? What would you like to see changed? Mm. All of those things have to change. You know, I think there's been so much emphasis on personal responsibility, and that and that is there, of course. Because there's all... a lot of anxiety that comes with that too. Lots For of sure. problems going, you know, I've been... Not me. Oh, maybe it's me. I've been fat all my life. You know, but you know what I mean? It's people, I, my, I, I, sometimes, and I feel very sad when I hear it. You know, like my wife will say, and it's very revealing, she'll probably be very upset that I say it. She goes, I feel that I've been overweight a lot of my life. And I say, I don't mm. think you have. I don't think you have at all. But she thinks about that. Whereas I go, well, if I'm going to eat it, I, they're, they're, I've eaten it and I'm going to enjoy it. Doesn't yeah. make it right. There's a lot of anxiety that comes with, with there that. There is, and I and I actually feel quite strong and we have to take the emphasis off everything being about weight because weight at the end of the day is just one reflection of whether or not you're getting your diet and your lifestyle right. And and of course, there is also a range of what is a healthy weight. So we've got this sort of double-edged sword where, yes, we have a, 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 I'm trying not to use the word huge, but it is, it's a huge problem with overweight and obesity. But equally, we've got the other edge of the sword, which is this anxiety around food and and also this idea then of of what is normal, what is healthy and what is beautiful. And the idea that your size and your and your shape is then linked to whether you're attractive or not is a real problem. Mm. So so we've got that that issue to deal with. And how do we deal with that in a way that that brings it back to it being about health? Yeah. So so what I think is there is always going to be that one level of personal responsibility. We do have to take responsibility for our own actions, our own choices. But over the top of that is where there's the role of government and the food industry. And they have to try and make it easier for people. Because part of the trouble also is, is relatively easy for me. I live in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. There's healthy places to eat. There's a beautiful grocer. There's a fishmonger, a butcher. I can get good food. It's not all that difficult. And I can do it in a relatively affordable way. But in other parts of Australia, it's a very different story. And that's where the government plays a very key role. You know, the fact that we're allowing whole housing estates to go up that has no community centre, that makes it difficult to walk or cycle um, to get to work or to get around, that makes it, you know, that allows the fast food giants to come in and have drive throughs and soulless kind of shopping centres that have that American style mall, but you have to drive to to get to and expend zero energy to do anything and to collect your food. And yet there is no single nice restaurant or a little local cafe or a local cuisine style place. You know, these are the, that urban planning has to be a huge part of it. Yeah. And, and we're not getting that right. What about um, in education or public health or expenditure on, you know, community well, centres where people go and learn to cook, for example? For sure, absolutely, and there's and and you know private enterprises are stepping in and doing that. You know, you just look at Jamie Oliver's Ministry of Food. You know, they're they're trying to step in and fulfil some of those roles, and we need to see more of that happening. You know, my mum was actually a domestic science teacher, or you called it home economics yeah. in my day. I don't know what the kids call it now. 
Um, and, you know, she returned to teach. She sort of gave up teaching when we were born and then went back when we were sort of teenagers. And she was totally disheartened that even in that period of time, no longer were kids being taught the basics of cooking, which is what she taught them. Suddenly it was, you know, weird sort of stuff that they were being taught. They weren't being taught the basics. And she kind of got despondent and left. And now when I look at my kids... Um, you know, they haven't learned to cook at school. You know, the, any cooking skills they've learned have been at home. So if kids are in an environment where their parents don't cook, because we also have a whole generation of people who are being raised by parents whose idea of home cooking is heat the jar of pasta sauce and throw it on the pasta. Um, you know, we've got a whole generation who don't know how to cook. And if you don't know how to cook, then how on earth can you, can you eat mm. well? So it's, a, it's amazing, actually, involved. that, well, Stephanie Alexandra as well. I don't know if you've oh, heard her of Stephanie, gar- but kitchen, kitchen gardens garden are program. Fantastic. So the school that my daughter went to and a number of schools, certainly in Victoria, that, that have kitchen garden programs are incredible. But they only yeah. learn it in a certain year. I think it's uh, five and six, possibly. But I remember going in and um, helping uh, at Jenna's school after she'd left. But they all yeah. said, can you come back? And, you know, I made an appearance as Gary from MasterChef. But... Once they got over that excitement, to actually see the excitement of them, you know, going out in the garden, ripping greens up and coming back in and quite happy to give it a try, even if they didn't really like it. It was just the fact what I loved is that they were quite willing to give it a try and understanding that actually, even though I think that I live, you know, that we live or the area that I live in is fairly well off and that they're professional parents and they're teaching their kids the right things, actually a lot of them aren't at all. They're just too busy and they're having Uber Eats when they get home. Yeah, it's, and, and that is really, really tricky. You know, I've, I've also visited one of um, Stephanie's kitchen gardens at one of the country schools and it was wonderful because they had the space, um, you know, so they had a fabulous garden and they had lots of parents who had the time to commit to help to run this garden and it was exactly the same thing. The kids were inside and they were cooking something and one of the, the little boys said to me, oh, I've never eaten. They were making some sort of... Um, a spiced um, eggplant, actually. And that's a tricky vegetable to get right. And it's not everybody's favourite vegetable, I would say. And this little kid was eating this eggplant and he said to me, I've never eaten, I've never even seen an eggplant before. And there he was eating it because he'd helped grow it and he'd helped to prepare it and cook Mm. it that day. And I thought that kid, if that parent had tried giving eggplant to that little boy at home, I bet he would never have tried it. And that he was here. There's all this talk at the government level, but actually translating that into practice down and then who polices, who makes sure that this is happening. So, I mean, to me, the only way of really being able to do it is that that these things have to be policed in some way to make sure that they're happening. And there has to be an education mm. within schools. We can't rely on parents because not all parents are able to to spend, you know, it's, it's very tricky when you've got two working parents And I fully, you know, for people listening who think, oh, I'm being on my high horse about giving a family meal, not at all. I fully appreciate how tricky that is. And I too will use Uber Eats frequently when I go, oh my goodness, I'm home and (sighs) I haven't thought about dinner yet and everybody's hungry and what are we going to do? So, you know, I try to make the healthiest choice available when we do when we do Uber Eats. But, you know, this, that's the reality of modern life. So, you know, a big part of, of my work now is to think, how can I help people to make healthy eating yeah. more effortless? I'm, I'm wondering, you know, in my own life, I start to, you know, talking about, say, the gym and the protein shakes and what have you. And I look at my wife's parents and my parents and go, you know what, they've been through their whole life, never went to a gym. None yeah. of them went to a gym. <laughs> yeah. they, they think it's ridiculous, right? And they, they've always been fairly active, I suppose. Like if I look at both sets of parents, fairly active, walk a lot, mm. um, eat three meals a day, don't snack a lot. Um, and obviously portion control is a massive thing. Yeah. And I remember uh, Dad staying with us. We were up, actually, actually up in Sydney uh, filming MasterChef at the time and we lived in Willoughby and I went to one of the uh, gyms there. Came And I loved it. You know, I'd get up 6 o'clock in the morning, go to the gym and do, you know, like 
I hit workout, come back covered in sweat. I remember walking through the front door and dad was, it was still like seven o'clock in the morning and dad was just coming out of the bathroom and he just turned around and he looked at me and without a, I don't think he thought about it. He probably doesn't even remember saying it. But he goes, you know, it's easier not to put it in and just went back to bed. <laughs> And what he was saying was, you just it's eat a, a bit re- less. It just goes eat a bit less, and you don't need to go to the gym. And 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 I've actually wondered, and, and I start looking at, it, I go, oh, don't be stupid, da da da. But as they're getting older and they're still relatively healthy, I'm starting to think, well, maybe my pinups are not the young trainer <laughs> at the gym, but my pinup actually should be my mum and dad, or my my wife's mum and dad are now eighty three apiece, and looking pretty trim and. And yeah, good. But, but except that you've hit the nail on the head there with saying that your parents are already active. So when we look at, you've heard of the blue zones. So the blue zones are, this was Dan um, Butler's uh, book, who looked at um, him and his team of researchers looked at what are the areas around the world who live the longest and seem to have the healthiest lives. And when you look at those places, they're not going to the gym either. It's places like Okinawa and Japan and the island of Crete, the Seventh-day Adventists in California and so on. So there's a number of different, there's somewhere in South America, I forget off the top of my head where they all are, but there's there's seven or so different blue zones. And most of them, but the, but the, one of the commonalities is about, you know, the, the Okinawans, for example, garden and they do Tai Chi and they dance right into their elder years. You know, my mum's now in, in her mid-70s and she teaches Scottish country dancing still. And then she walks every day she's in the country. So she walks her dog. Um, you know, my dad, not so much, but <laughs> we've got one of them doing the exercise, but they live very active lives. So my thought in the gym, though, is that for us, particularly in an urban environment, it can be more difficult in our busy lives to, and, and a lot of us, me included, have jobs that involve a lot of sitting. I have to do a lot of lecturing, writing, traveling on planes. It can be really hard. So to me, people who say to me, well, I don't like exercise for exercise sake, I say, well, unless you exercise for exercise sake, you're just not going to get it. Unless you've got a manual job, chefs, maybe not so bad because you're on your feet, you're in the kitchen a lot, you know, you're at least up on your feet, but yeah, then you're surrounded by food. So, you know, so there's this, this problem that we need to exercise and sometimes you've got to exercise your own body because it doesn't happen in our day-to-day life anymore. Yeah. And the gym is just one way to do it and it doesn't suit everybody. It's interesting when I look at Mandy's mum's table and, you know, we're talking the same thing, but it's... um there were three boys and Mandy in the family and they weren't wealthy. You know, they lived on Mm -hmm. a council estate and uh, she still cooks exactly the same way. She can, she's like Jesus, you know, she can make the loaves (laughs) and fishes, you know, like she goes into the fridge and puts a meal together. But the, and some things I would consider really people would look at it and go, that's not very healthy, but she will save, still save the fat from roasting the chicken and use that to yeah. use as cooking oil, uh, which is delicious. And as a chef, that that appeals to my flavour buttons. You know, that's perfect. So often people are never having a proper meal during the day in particular. So they're, they're hungry all the time. They're never truly satisfied and always a little bit hungry. So it's a packet of chips and I grab this and I grab that. And it's just this grazing that goes on all day long. So, you know, I actually think our parents had that part yeah. right, that it's that three meals a day works for most people. It sits I, with our culture I think really I well. should be in charge because I'm off to France and there's two things about France in my mind. They'd one or two hour lunch break and one the fact that you're a waitress in Paris. Can you? <laughs> can I have one story? 
please. <laughs> it was a good experience. I, I, I was always, I waitressed for years and years and years. I used to waitress back in Glasgow as well. It was a silver service waitress back there. We just do the whole Gee, silver Glasgow domes. Glasgow Paris, there's two like, different images for me. You do a MasterChef, I know. There's two, two images of the food that would be served. But can, have you so, got one story, one funny story that you remember? Oh, it doesn't have oh, to be oh about I do food. actually. It doesn't have oh, to be I don't about know if food. I should tell you this one, but I will. If it's rude, we'll just cut it out. No, 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 it's not rude. It's just a bit gross. Um, because so, so one, the, the, I don't know how well you know Paris, but Paris, Paris, um, Paris. Oh, Joanna, you a lot have of the no restaurants, idea. <laughs> a lot of the restaurants have the kitchen is down in the basement. Yeah, the dungeons. And um, my French wasn't brilliant, uh, but I could, I managed as a waitress and I could, had sort of good um, conversational French, but if the conversation got complex, I couldn't. And the whole of the kitchen were Moroccan chefs. And so their French, they spoke with a very Accent. heavy accent. So we didn't yeah. have a, our communication was somewhat limited. Anyway, at the end of the night, what happened was there was like a literally a hatch in the floor and the, the, the food used to come up in a, what like you call a dumb, them, a dumb waiter. waiter. Yeah. And us waitresses would take all the food out. So we really went down to the kitchens. But at the end of the night, we had to take all the desserts and the whatnots and everything all downstairs. And I did always think, God, it's funny in this kitchen, like everything is locked away in steel cabinets and so on. And then what would happen is the staff would then sit and have a meal together at the end of the shift when the restaurant was closing. And at the end of this one particular night, we'd all, and there was one cake had been left out. And I said, no problem, don't worry, I'll take it down to the kitchen. And one of the chefs said, oh, I'll, I'll come with you. And I thought, I was only a young 18, 19 year old. So I thought, that's a bit odd. Why does he want to come down in the basement with me? So I was a little nervous going with this Moroccan man down into the basement. <laughs> anyway, I'm carrying the cake and I follow him down to the kitchen and he opens the kitchen door and swacks the right Oh, on. I know what's going to happen. And rats just went everywhere scurried everywhere and I, I don't know whether I was kind of relieved that I wasn't just being lured to the basement <laughs> with this Moroccan chef <laughs> but it was actually because of the rats so there you go and he told me that that's a massive problem in Paris yeah, rats in the in kitchen in every city in the and world everything has to be locked away yeah I remember at the Connell when I first went to London to train um, they were going through the same problem because where there are people, there are rats Yeah, and in big cities like New York you know, it, there's a massive underground universe that no one ever yeah. sees and we it was the same thing it was you'd go down into the this hotel would have been built in the 1800s you know like the Savoy and the and Claridge's mm. and it was the same thing if the lights were off there were little cockroaches and yeah no it's it's as a food city it is just at the top of the list for me but then you know oh, every, me too. every city it. is Japan Tokyo mm. is amazing and it's wonderful and we can talk for hours and Dave is winding up because we're talking too much <laughs> Joanna McMillan thank you very much indeed. I'll stop talking to you then Thank you for having me. Talking to Joanna really made me think about what I love about food and what makes it so important. And if you go to France, for example, they're renowned for taking the long lunch. I think they've got it right. Italy's the same. When you take an hour and a half for lunch, I'm not talking about a lazy workforce. We're just talking about a structure that's different to the day that we have. Everything's a bit slower. There's more social interaction around lunch. You eat slower. You take time. You tend to eat fresh food. And you go back feeling nourished, not just in a sense of feeling full, but having engaged with the community engage with the family. There's something to it. There's something to health, getting older and being healthy and being connected that all links in with food that I think is really important. And I think right now we've got it totally wrong in Australia. We're eating on the go, we're eating fast, we're eating lots of packaged food. You know, you see, you walk down the street and unlike when I was growing up, I never saw anybody with a cup of coffee in their hand. I never saw anybody with a supersized uh, soft drink in their hand. I never saw anybody with a burger in a, in a wrapper. And yet I see it every day. And in fact, I do it myself. And there's something wrong about that. And we need to change. 
A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Zwolenski. Audio production is Darcy Thompson and special thanks to Imogen Thomas for all the research. Thank you.